listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Hi, James. Thank you very much. Brilliant presentation. Thank you. Uh, I'm an Antipodean, uh, and I'm very concerned about what's going on in the South China Sea, um, the rise of Indonesia as a, a probable adversary, um, their takeover of West Papua and the atrocities they're committing there in, in Timor. Um, looking for resources, you know. China's probably going to be doing the same thing if they're expanding into the South China Sea. Are they going to see Indonesia as a potential ally or are they going to be a adversary? You know, Philippines, Indonesia, ta Taiwan. Yeah. Are they going to group with Australia, New Zealand? That's a, a good question. It's a very difficult question because there are so many balls in the air and it really depends on what form this ultimately comes. Um, I think the most interesting part of this will be the US and its allies' reaction to the One Belt, One Road initiative and the various things that are going on. Because I think China is, for the most part at this point, trying to buy its friends throughout the region and it's uh, that will always be, there will always be a roadblock placed in their way by military means, uh, if necessary. Uh, an example that comes to mind, it's not Indonesia, but um, I was talking about Djibouti and its importance as part of the trading uh, shipping routes for African resources coming out and going up through Pakistan into China. Well, wouldn't you know it, the port that China has spent a lot of money and a lot of time developing and, and uh, building up with Pakistan on the southern coast there of Pakistan, the port of Gwadar, is in an area of Pakistan known as Balochistan. And wouldn't you know it, the local Balochis, of course, have their own independence movement, which is now being supported by US congressmen and others because they've seen the light. Yeah, the Balochis are now this is a great cause of ours. I think that's how this is going to function, at least at this stage of the game that is being played. It's a question of trying to put various roadblocks in the way. So, I, I, again, it's difficult to say, and I don't know a lot of the specifics of the internal politics in Indonesia, so I can't really say which way it's tending. But at any rate, that's what I expect to play out generally and probably with Indonesia as well. Yeah, hello again. I wish to repeat our appreciation of that brilliant presentation, and in particular how you have outlined the parallel trends leading to World War I and eventually World War III. Yes. Now, what may be interesting here is to look at some of the circumstances which may prevent these trends from converging mm -hmm. into World War III, and I would like to hear your comment on three circumstances which I think differs. One is the advent of nuclear weapons, which makes World War IV being, will be fought. Sticks and stones. With sticks and stones, mm -hmm. uh, for reasons we all know. Second, one consequence of the opening of Kissinger and Brzezinski 
is that now the American production apparatus virtually is locally located geographically in China. So United States produce arms and films, and that's about all, a little food. Third, China has, you know this better than I, but I, I believe it is 700 billion American treasuries. Is that around that? I believe upwards of a trillion, but yeah. Okay, close to a trillion means that they could pull the plug on the American dollar from one day to another. Maybe that is not uh, an insurance to us because if, if it happens that China confiscates or nationalizes all the American production apparatus in China, and if they dump the American treasuries, we have a cornered, wounded tiger, which is not a friendly <laughs> animal. Uh, so how do you see this game being played out? Because it may happen from one day to another, the whole financial house of cards may collapse and things may go out of control. Okay. And, yeah. and also the, uh, the possibility there are people in Washington who believe that a nuclear war can be won. Yeah. And how much, what are their role? Thank you. Yes, thank you for the, the question. I, uh, I will attempt to give an answer to all three parts. So with regards to nuclear, the prospect of nuclear warfare, I think you're right, that does represent something completely different from the World War I era. Um, it's not just a, a difference in degree, it's a difference in kind in terms of what goes into military planning with regards to this, which is why I think World War III and us conceptualizing it as a military confrontation necessarily and wholly might be the wrong way of going about thinking about it because I'm not sure that's what the, if not the military planners, at least the the planner planners, uh, I'm not sure that's the way they see it. And I think that's why economic warfare and subterfuge and uh, Gladio Beach-style terrorist operations and things like that are part of the total warfare that goes into a World War III scenario, perhaps even the most important part. So I agree the nuclear warfare prospect brings a completely different aspect to this. And there are and there have been crazies in the bowels of the Pentagon since the advent of nuclear weapons, gaming out the possibility of how do we win a nuclear war and how many mega deaths are we prepared to accept? We, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I agree, it's a different game and that's why I think that World War III probably will not look anything like a conventional military confrontation. Um, as regards to China and it's uh, the outsourcing of US productivity to China, and how that affects the situation. Um, would two powers go to war if one is literally building everything and shipping it over to the other? I mean, how does that affect relations? Actually, I think something that maybe I didn't stress in the presentation, but it was worth talking about, is the fact that maybe we think of it, since we're looking at the parallel with World War I, we might think of it as a similar outcome, that you have the rising power of Germany being contained by the ruling power of Britain, which sort of transfers over to the ruling power of America, the Anglo-American power. Um, but World War III certainly wouldn't have to play out that way, and I have a feeling it's not meant to play out that way if it does eventuate. Um, 
Soros and others have literally referred to China as the engine of the new world order. Uh, Rockefeller, of course, did his ode to Mao in the 1970s in the New York Times on his death, talking about the grand social experiment that Mao brought in. Uh, even if America fought this war and won the war in a military sense, it's not clear to me that America would mean what people most people believe it to mean at that point anyway. It will be some sort of merger of these systems with some sort of authoritarian control. Um, but perhaps America isn't meant to win this war at all. Um, clearly, we are being positioned for the switchover of the US dollar as a world reserve currency. So I think that's in the cards. And I think, again, it's maybe our detriment that we think of these people as being part of a nation state, that a Rockefeller or Rothschild or whatever has some allegiance to these nation states that they are currently inhabiting. I certainly don't see it that way. And I think that the powers that shouldn't be in America have more in common with the powers that shouldn't be in China and elsewhere than they do with you or I. So I, I don't think they have any allegiance to America. I don't think they're invested in the idea of America winning a third world war. Uh, with regards to dumping of treasuries, um, China has been, I mean, if we want to look at it in a 2D perspective, just the sort of pieces as they're presented, uh, China has been put in the position of essentially funding the Iraq and Afghan wars. Uh, they have accrued this incredible trade surplus and these incredible US dollar reserves, these incredible treasury holdings, which is essentially subsidizing the American empire in its military conquest around the world. And the U.S. keeps printing out these debt notes and saying, ha ha, take this, take this, take this, you got to take it. And that's obviously why the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the Shanghai Energy Exchange and these alternative systems are being created. Um, and that's why I think that the dumping of the treasuries, the nuclear option, I don't think that's realistic from any perspective. Uh, for China, it would be suicide. If they did it now, if they did it a few years ago even, when people were talking about this quite a bit, uh, it would just be suicide economically. Um, China is still too embedded in the system. I think the point is to build these alternatives and to gradually get out of the system, or at least that's what you would think the point would be. But as I detail in my work on China, the engineered World War III uh, scenario, it's interesting to me that all of these alternatives that are being constructed all seem to feed back in through the back door to the existing international institutions. Um, one example being the BRICS New Development Bank, which was heavily touted and every mainstream headline said at the time, this is the rival to the IMF and the World Bank. And then when it's actually set up, of course, some of the very same executives who sit on the board of the IMF are running the bank. Hmm, that's odd. Um, or China. There was a lot of ballyhoo a few years ago. China is setting up its alternative to the SWIFT network. The SWIFT network is the banking uh, transaction network that sends bank transactions internationally. It's extremely important for the banks to be able to function, basically, do clearing and transactions internationally. And that's why, although the SWIFT network is a neutral organization and blah, 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 but a few years ago, of course, uh, the US said, we don't like Iran cut Iran out of the SWIFT network, and the SWIFT network said, yes, sir. And they took Iran off the SWIFT network, and suddenly Iran was uh, reduced to phone calls and other things to try to transact business uh, internationally um, with other banks. Um, it, it essentially cut them off. 
So China and Russia look at that and they go, that's a pretty big vulnerability. We should do something about that. So both China and Russia have constructed their versions of an alternative SWIFT network. And a few years ago, it was very much in the, in the financial press anyway, China has constructed their SWIFT alternative. Following up on that, as it starts to develop a year or two later, it comes out that, yeah, China has now made an agreement with the SWIFT network. So they'll actually use the SWIFT architecture, but they'll, they'll kind of rent it out from the SWIFT. So actually it feeds back in the back door to the SWIFT network. So again, the, the idea that they're, I mean, one idea that we could get is they're creating these alternative structures and they're going to gradually try to step out of them and US dollar goes down. But at the same time, they're all feeding into the same multinational institutions by the back door, basically. And I don't think there's an alternative that's really being presented to us. Surprise, surprise. I think it's, you know, globalist team A and globalist team B, and they're asking you to pick a side. So, so, so just shortly, may, may we sum up the, what, what you just said. The real conflict is not along national fractures. This is obsolete, actually, that picture is between top and bottom. Yes, if it ever existed, because even 100, right. 200 years ago, I think the nation-state battles that were taking place were just agreements between roiling, royal ruling uh, Kakistocracy, who are all cousins anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I'll send a few million of my people over to die in your soil, you send a few million over on my soil, we'll have a handshake afterwards. Um, I don't think the nation-state idea has ever really applied to the powers that shouldn't be in the way that it applies to most people. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you. It's sort of connected to the last point. I'm more interested what you think is the specific role of Russia in all that. Um, in my view, they are authentic opponents of this whole New World Order agenda since Putin. There's, for example, the famous talk he gave at the Valdai conference in 2014, which was devoted to this whole subject of a world order. I mean, there's extensive interviews where he comes across as quite authentic in his opposition to the New World Order. And um, if if a kind of non-nuclear war in different levels as you expose them would really become a serious threat to Russia, there would always be the possibility to defend with nuclear means for Russia. And in terms of the nuclear triad, there's complete parity between Russia and the USA. And some military specialists even say that Russia is far ahead uh, in terms of electronic warfare capabilities and also in terms of uh, missile technology. So in difference to this former situation, if nowadays the sea powers, Great Britain, America, they could be quite, quite confident in former times that they would not get harmed too much. This is a completely different situation now, especially with, uh, in view of these abilities of Russia. And some, the last point, some even say that Russia has defended against this encirclement with military bases by placing so-called mole nuclear warheads along the whole eastern coastline of the United States, which means that just press a button and a huge tsunami wave covers the whole of the eastern, um, eastern American coastline. So I mean, they would think five times before they start a real war with Russia. 
So how do you place that? All right. Well, let's talk about the role of Russia in this. And I think, given recent developments in the past year, um, perhaps Russia seems even more pertinent to this example than China does. I think in the grander scheme, it's China that is being set up to be the Germany of the 21st century. But um, Russia has clearly taken the limelight in the past year, two years. I think, I think at least, if not primarily, at least to a large degree because of internal politics in the United States. But the idea of Russia as a counterbalance to what's going on, they're against the globalists. Um, firstly, I think the first order to dissecting that is to look at the idea of Russia and what they think, as if Russia is a monolithic entity. Um, think of it in terms of whatever, you know, whatever, if you're Danish, the Danish government or whatever, uh, people can see the subtleties and the, the differences and this person over here and no, that's not the same as this person over there. But when we're looking at a foreign country, it's the country and they all think the same thing. So from that level of analysis, I would say that there are different cliques and factions within the Russian government. Um, the St. Petersburg clique that uh, Putin is kind of part of that has its own intentions and designs that is perhaps warring or conflicting with other um, members of the government, because the government is not a singular thing. And if you look at uh, Putin's finance minister, for example, or the head of the Russian Central Bank, they're often at odds. So it is not a, a singular thing. Um, but Putin himself, is he, is he the crusading anti-globalist who's going to save us from the United States? I think not. Um, I think not because I will never trust an ex-KGB to be the head of a country that's going to steer us into a wonderful world of peace and harmony. Um, call me cynical. Um, but also, actions do speak louder than words. So what are the actions that we can look to? There are actions that Russia has taken that clearly are um, against the interests of certain members of the, the, uh, the overall ruling hierarchy. I, I agree, and I see that, and kicking out um, some of the the bankers and their, their minions and things. And, uh, but what is Putin positively doing? And what is he involved in? Again, I think with the BRICS, I've written about this extensively. You might want to look at an article I've written about phony opposition, the truth about the BRICS, in which I really do not see BRICS as being a sig significant roadblock to the globalist agenda. I see it as the necessary other side of the dialectic. You have to have two warring parties. There's the warmongers, the, you know, NATO, the, the bad guys, clearly. And then there's the good guys, the good globalists that are going to give us the good globalism. And it's the same fundamental underlying philosophy because look, for example, at uh, Putin and his promotion, his, his, his desire to create the Eurasian Economic Union, the EEU, that we don't hear much about because it hasn't done very much yet. But it is specifically consciously modeled on the Euro European Union um, with a, a, a commission and a council and all of the same bodies. And it's designed that eventually, or the plan is eventually, it's going to create a, a singular currency in the, the region. And it's going to start operating like the EU does. It's the Eurasian Economic Union. It involves Russia and some of the, um, the Central Asian states. Um, so it's moves like this that make me think, is this really fundamentally opposed to, to what's going on? Or is it just opposed to certain factions, certain cliques? Yeah, of course there are wars between certain factions and cliques, but I don't think that gets to the heart of the matter because this is about an ideology. 
It is about the ideology of collectivism and globalism, the idea that we have to subsume our identity to these larger multinational institutions. And the new world order that the BRICS side is proposing is all about, well, it's a multilateral world order where you know, we'll ha China has always been arguing for we want more representation at the UN and IMF and bodies like this. They're not arguing against those bodies. They, want, they say, we want a better seat at that table. Um, and I see Russia in that same, in that same category. Um, and I'll believe it when I see more fundamental steps and moves towards um, really challenging the fundamental underlying idea. But again, I, there's no country on earth that fundamentally believes in human liberty. Um, the idea of government itself is opposed to that. So how can I ever trust a politician to deliver it to, to me? Um, the idea of nuclear defense uh, that Russia would have if it's being encircled by NATO, um, or the idea that Russia is far ahead in terms of military technology with electronic warfare and other things, uh, it's certainly been said and is certainly promoted by a lot of Russian analysts or pro-Russian analysts. But do you really think that the US is showing us all of their technology? Do you really think we know what the Pentagon actually has? If they really wanted to do something spectacular, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they have, but I'm betting we don't know either, right? No one here knows. So uh, take those claims for what they're worth. Yeah, the Russians have shown us some pretty fancy technology. Doesn't mean Pentagon doesn't have it and much beyond it. Um, and the idea of nuclear warheads being used, for example, to set off a tsunami or something like that. Um, clearly, it's an option, I guess. But that, that kind of option sounds to me like back in, you know, turn of the 20th century when people tried to imagine 100 years in the future. Well, we've got blimps now, so there'll be whole fleets of blimps going across the Atlantic. That's the future of air travel. I mean, we can't even conceptualize what's possible with technology that we don't know exists yet. So, yeah, maybe nuclear warheads to set off tsunamis, but how about, I don't know, weather warfare? Maybe that will be the, the way that war is waged in the future, and how much more effective will that be? Because, you know, they how do you even prove it? And how do you know? And who, who's going to... I mean, most of the public won't even believe that such a thing exists. So is it even warfare? Is it happening right now? Are we engaged in this? Probably, yes. Uh, does that count as World War III? I don't know. So there's a lot of things to think about with regard to that. Thank you for the question. Keep your question short, please. There's this one, and then you... To me, it appears very much as a schizophrenic situation at one place, that basically the U.S. is um, outsourcing everything, production, wood, steel, computers <laughs> to China, and at the same time attack them. This re very much kind of knits in what you said of a power shift, that kind of the U.S. may be supporting its own <laughs> going down. Exactly. Because yeah. In the background, it's ordered to do so? Yes. I mean, that is, I think that's the fundamental layer of my thesis. And I think that it takes account for some complexity, because certainly not every single person in every one of these institutions is consciously working towards this goal. I think most of the people, for example, in the American military complex or in the political complex, believe they are working towards you know, winning this fight against China, which they probably really believe is a real conflict, but uh, not seeing that there are string pullers higher above them who have more information and know about certain connections and are pulling strings so that 
maybe they don't care if all you guys get fried because we got our ticket out of here. Uh, as you said before, there will be a lot of redrawings around the globe when it comes to the Third World War afterwards. But uh, my question is, uh, how about Israel? Because now in the Middle East, we can see that they are trying to create, the United States, Israel and some other countries, are trying to create a new in independent Kurdistan. And there's a lot of uh, old maps from Albert Pike in 18th century, where we can see that they are trying to create a completely new Middle East with new borders and new countries uh, in, in all corners of the region, even in greater Middle East, Afghanistan, Pakistan, over to North Africa. So my question is, uh, how do we see Israel's participation in all these, uh, all these uh, fightings and, and, and preparations for Third World War? Yeah, it's an excellent point, especially because that also relates to World War I with the Balfour Declaration, and which ultimately led to the creation of Israel. So, yeah. Um, uh, did you mention Albert Pike? Oh, okay, right. I, I, I'd need a reference on that, because I know people like to cite the World War III prediction letter, but I don't buy it. Um, but I, I just think it's not real, uh, and I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, with regards to the overall point, um, I just lost my train of thought. Mm. Mm. Okay, so yes, uh, well with Israel we don't have to go very far to see their intention to redraw the map. They've written about it extensively and over and over for decades. At least, um, perhaps most importantly, going back to the Oded Yunon plan for essentially what is happening right now. The carving up of Syria, the carving up of Iraq, basically carving up the various players around it that could po pose any threat and getting them fighting in sectarian fighting so that uh, you know, there's no one to even potentially uh, challenge the domin regional dominance. So I think that's, uh, that's not even a conspiracy theory. It's just, it's not even a conspiracy fact. It's just a fact. They openly admit it. And it's been detailed in the clean break documents and all of these types of planning documents. And of course, that's the context in which we have to understand why the neocons came into power thirsting, hungering after the destruction of Iraq. It's not because a bunch of Americans, per se, really cared about what was happening in Iraq, it's because, of course, Israel had a huge interest in what was going on there. So Israel is absolutely, yes, fundamental, and the Israeli oligarchy is committed to the redrawing of the map in ways that will serve itself. I think there's no doubt about that. Yes, hello. Uh, I wonder if you ever have uh, considered the thought that uh, nuclear weapons um, might not be real, but uh, weapon uh, fear-mongering weapon created uh, by the media, since uh, we only have uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, if you look at the pictures, uh, the, the smoke plume uh, looks the same uh, of the two bombings. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Well, I live not far from Hiroshima. And uh, back when I started the website, so most people probably haven't seen this, but there is a a video up on my YouTube channel where I interviewed one of the survivors of the blast. That was a harrowing experience talking to someone. He was a junior high school student at the time. They were sent out to the fields outside of Hiroshima that day because they were digging potatoes or something as part of the war effort and saw the blast and uh, saw the destruction. So I personally don't have much skepticism as about the existence of nuclear weapons. But I do think that there is room for skepticism about the effects of nuclear radiation, 
Um, I don't, I mean, the existence of radiation poisoning, et cetera, is, I don't think, really disputable. But to what extent and in what way it functions, uh, they talked about how Hiroshima would be a wasteland for 10,000 years. And, well, I go there a lot. And it's a bustling, thriving city with lots of things growing around it. And Chernobyl has wildlife returning and things like this. So I don't know. But, I mean, it's potentially possible that there is fear-mongering around the nuclear issue, and that would make sense from a strategic uh, point of view for the oil industry that sees, obviously, a competitor in the nuclear energy industry. So if everyone is scared to death of nuclear power, then what alternative do you have but keep feeding the oil companies? So that could be one aspect that I, I haven't done enough research to have any definitive statement on. But as to the existence of nuclear weapons themselves, I don't have... I don't have doubt about that. As to their, you know, the capabilities of the arsenals that exist today and how many megatons and all of that, I, I mean, again, yeah, how do we know? But I think there is some sort of nuclear weapon that's, that exists. Um, but they clearly are used as a, as a fear-mongering tool um, and have been for 70 years um, to condition the public, you know, duck and cover and all of these other ridiculous things, which are now being taught in Japan as well. So, um, yeah, I think there's an aspect to it that's fear-mongering, but the existence of the weapons themselves, I don't hold in doubt. I have a, I have a question for you about uh, the economy down here. Ah. Do, you, do you know anything about the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so forth? Uh, do you see those uh, cryptocurrencies as a potential threat to the US dollar uh, empire? bringing it down and uh, taking it over? Or do you see it as a construct of the powers that, just, that should not be? Uh, I think that it is a potential threat to central banking itself. It uh, is potentially the elimination of the need for central banks, as if there was ever a need, but even the pretense of a need for central banks, or banks themselves. Uh, through Bitcoin and other technologies that are coming online, peer-to-peer -peer lending and other things, there is the possibility for the complete disintermediation of the entire financial and ba banking industry as it has existed. Banks are only essentially a function of the fact that we have needed trusted third parties to verify transactions and, and things of that nature and, and to store, store our wealth, our paper dollars or whatever. Uh, but that pretense is gone when you have blockchain technology, distributed ledgers, peer-to-peer -peer technology, where we don't need those trusted third parties anymore. So why do we need banks? Why do we need Visa? Why do we need any of these constructs? Um, having said that, of course, cryptocurrencies are only valid and useful if they are used in the way they are intended to be used. And I see it one measure of the PSYOP that's taken place has been to make people believe that Blockchain equals Bitcoin. So every time you hear the word blockchain being used in any context, in any way, by anyone, it means Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, it always comes back to me, to the idea of, well, just try to put, let's just think of it as a currency and try to put it in dollar terms. So I'm not convinced this is a perfect analogy yet, but at any rate, it may be the start of an analogy. Um, if we think of the blockchain ledger technology as a printing press, and then the dollars coming out of that printing press, Bitcoin, was one application of the printing press technology. But you can use a printing press to do a lot of other things. You can print 
government propaganda. You could print the truth. You could print, you know, toilet paper. You could print all sorts of things with the printing press. Well, with blockchain technology, you can do all sorts of things. And Bitcoin is just one application of that technology and one protocol. Um, so, uh, can blockchain technology be used in ways that it's not intended to be used for nefarious purposes or to get people, you know, go chasing down a wrong rabbit hole? Of course, yes. And I'm not committed to Bitcoin per se uh, as a protocol. Um, but I think the possibility of truly, utterly, completely getting rid of banking as an institution is at least theoretically feasible right now. Um, there is one question and then one more and then it's finished. Is it all right, James? I'll do my best. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have a question uh, about, uh, I actually have two questions. Um, Denmark is the oldest uh, kingdom still remaining in the world, so when we look at history, it's of course obvious for us to look at royal history as well. That's why I'm very pleased that you mentioned uh, Edward VII uh, considering the Triple Entente, because uh, he was, as I understand, the mastermind behind it. Um, some people believe that the Second World War was the finish of First World War, what came after the Versailles Treaty, and, uh, and uh, that... The, so my first question is, do you believe that the Second World War was engineered as well, because it wasn't on your chart up there? Uh, and, and the second question is that some people, this is still the royal power, and, and, and uh, of course we don't have to go more than 100 years back in Denmark to know how big it was, uh, or, or even just so until the Second World War. But, but some people believe that through royalty, through the Freemason system, uh, Committee of 300, that the royal houses have some power in the real uh, global power structure. And do you believe that England could be controlling United States through the Bank of England, through a Freemasonic system or in some... Uh, so my, my question is actually, are the royal houses playing in the global power structure uh, in your right. opinion? Yeah. Thank you for the question, good questions. Um, with regards to Edward Seven as the mastermind of the uh, Triple Entente, uh, he was certainly the vessel um, for the creation of that Triple Entente, one that is often excluded from the history. No, no, it was the Foreign Secretary doing this and that, but clearly Edward VII was making a bunch of diplomatic maneuvers as he was going around making pleasure visits to various places, and he was instrumental in creating that Triple Entente. But I think we have to understand Edward VII as the vessel for the, uh, the secret elite, as uh, Jim, Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor call it in um, Hidden History, uh, that he was, you know, he was in alignment with what they wanted to do, so, you know, he was allowed to do it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced he was the mastermind, but he was certainly the vessel for that. Was World War II engineered? Yes. I mean, even from a, a non-conspiratorial angle, I think it's fairly mainstream at this point to say that Versailles and the treaty, the peace, um, was just the sort of truce that, would, that necessitated the Second World War. It was just... You know, it was inevitably going to happen, especially because the war reparations, the clause in the Treaty of Versailles puts guilt for the war on Germany, the entire war. And so reparations, so you got to pay. Uh, it was ridiculous. It was outrageous. If they were committed to actual peace, 
um, there's no way that 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 would even be a consideration, um, especially because, again, I think uh, Hidden History and other other people in recent years have talked at great length about the extremely, I mean, British engineering of that conflict in so many different ways. So in that sense, yes, World War II was engineered. I think in other senses as well, World War II was engineered and with royal participation um, and collaboration that was going on, uh, as well as business collaboration that was going on, um, Standard Oil, IG Farben, um, royal collaboration that was going on with the Nazi regime. Um, I mean, there's all sorts, there's so much material there. Uh, and I've just been revising and reviewing World War I so much that I don't think I'll get into the weeds of that. But, but I am planning to do a thorough explanation and exploration of World War II and its engineering. Um, royal power and how, where the royalty fit on this scheme. Uh, I, yeah, this is where it starts to get a lot of conjectural and me talking about things that I don't know, but it looks like... so. Yeah, I mean, who is at the top of the pyramid? Are the royals really that high up, or are there people above them, and who controls what? Uh, well, we know, for example, I mean, we know that the Rothschild family, most famously, but other bankers and banking families as well, I mean, became... Wealthy isn't the right word. I mean, it's beyond wealth. It's the ability to control and money and create money, so I don't know what to call that, but became masters of the economic universe by lending to royalty. So there's some relationship there that royalty at least can't exist without these bankers and can't maintain their control without them. So at least to that extent, royalty cannot be solely the, the power. I mean, there has to be some outside assistance that's going on there. With regards to England kind of controlling the U.S., uh, the Bank of England controlling the Federal Reserve or something along those lines. Uh, I think it's pretty apparent if you study the history of the U.S. Um, from its founding, I think that the British were... I mean, I guess you could make the case that they had planned all along that there would be this independence and what have you, but not real independence. Um, whether or not that was the intention to really incite an independence movement, um, there clearly was always a design and a, a plan to maintain English, if not control, at least English, uh, maybe ownership of what was happening in the US. And uh, again, we know this from a, a direct angle, um, the formation of the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable, which was geared towards fundamentally the propagation and, uh, and the, the expansion of the English um, power, but of course, they call it the Anglo-American establishment because they the Anglo-American establishment. They include America in that as part of the Anglo-Saxon people. So, I mean, we know that really the center of that power was in England and was English and was looking for English interests, but they wedded themselves to America as the vessel, the, the sort of military vessel that they could use for that. So I think, yeah, uh, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, I'm not sure it's English control over the U.S. Again, I don't think it's nation-state per se, but there's clearly some nexus there. And you, I mean, uh, should explore the works of Carol Quigley, including the Anglo-American establishment, to sort of understand that context. A very, very short question, and the last one. Who there? Hi. Hi. 
Um, I remember seeing one of your videos earlier, and we were talking about World War II. And I remember you making a statement at one point that uh, Hitler was a Rothschild, or at least a bastard Rothschild. Would you mind elaborating how he was maybe played as a pawn in World War II? Well, okay, so the statement that Hitler was a Rothschild comes, uh, the, the research that I was going on for that statement, which I don't, I'm not asserting as 100% truth, but I, as I pointed out, and I, I, the, the reference is in the video, so I don't, know the, I don't remember the reference, but it came from, um, uh, what's her name? Someone here knows. She was an uh, American broadcaster in the 1970s, uh, whose name is going to escape me. But anyway, uh, and she had dug up some of the, the research that pointed to that possibility that Hitler was a bastard Rothschild, um, which I think is an intriguing possibility. But regardless of whether or not he was literally genealogically a Rothschild, I think there's no doubt that the Nazi German phenomenon could not have existed if it was not allowed to exist in numerous different ways. And Again, we can look at some hard data for that. Um, I would point, for example, of course, to Antony Sutton and his research into Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, where he talked about the, the economic combine, the, the relations that had to exist for Germany to function as a war machine in World War II, not having, not having the oil deposits and access to oil deposits. How are they going to fuel their, their military machine? Well, they had to do so by coal, but how do they do that? Well, the, the process to create synthetic oil from coal was given to them by standard oil. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of relations like that that has to be understood to, to see it in its greater context. And when you see the British royal family that clearly, clearly were Nazi sympathizers, I mean, that's why, that's really why uh, Edward VIII had to abdicate. And that's why, uh, <laughs> There was that bizarre story a few years ago that came out early home footage of Queen Elizard Beast um, giving the, uh, the Nazi salute uh, as a joke, you know, it was a joke. And of course, I mean, that was briefly reported and I think The Sun or some tabloid posted a few pictures of it, but quickly swept under the rug, never talked about again. So why Prince Harry comes out at a costume party for Halloween, ha ha, I'm a Nazi with a Nazi armband and everything, ha, it's funny. Um, I mean, there's clearly all sorts of shenanigans going on there that relates to the Rudolf Hess story and what really happened there, parachuting into Scotland at the height of the war. It's just insanity. Um, there's a big story there that I'd love to get my teeth into, but I have a million other things on my plate. So yeah, I think we have to understand the World War II story in terms of the broader picture that Nazi Germany could not have risen unless it was allowed to rise. And another important part of that story is also the Bank for International Settlements, which was created as part of the mechanism to handle the reparations that Germany was paying and all of that, that continued to function and work with the Nazi government during World War II as its outlet to the world, without which it, again, wouldn't have been able to function um, financially, um, economically. So there's all sorts of different aspects to this, which is why I mean, it's such a grand thing to talk about with so many moving parts that, again, there are a lot of people involved and enmeshed in that system, just like with the World War III buildup that we're seeing today, that understand and believe and are operating in the 2D system. It's us versus them. But I think there's always the level higher up that sees both sides and is pulling the strings. And that's, that's where we have to keep our attention. Because, again, 
I think if we get ourselves involved in that 2D game and we choose a side here or choose a side there, we lose the one thing that we have, which is our independence and our ability to say no. And as I say, I think that's the most important thing. It's a battle for your mind, and you are the one who chooses if they win or lose that battle. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is an area you don't uh, feel in your office in Canada, huh? Yeah. No. yeah. So, uh, you know, people love you, man. Yeah. And I love you. <laughs> I, uh, I can't help it. I, I need to come with one comment to, to this magnificent uh, presentation because I think also one fundamental change is that our belief in politicians, even if you are conspiracy theorist or you're just a standard man on the street, is vaporized. So how would that get us all to fight in a war? Nobody trust a politician and maybe we even in this country trust the politician most in the whole world so yeah i would say they they have to come up with a very good uh, campaign to get us into a uniform but we will see again thank you very much james it was a marvelous presentation is brought to you by you. Your support makes the Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.